hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. Yes, you are. Yeah, uh, Chip couldn't be here today. Uh, so I have Chris Covert with I'm back. Me in the co-host seat. I'm back. What's going on? I'm nothing. What's going on with you? You're back. It's been too long. It's been uh, almost a year. I feel like it's been almost a year. Probably not. I don't know. It 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 doesn't feel it doesn't feel too long to me. It feels like uh, <laughs> not long enough. It's this was the right amount of time. I've uh... <laughs> wow. I gotta be. Um, I gotta be one of the most repeated guests, though. Not that I'm a guest, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you're this is like my fifth, sixth show. I feel like is it? I feel like yeah. That feels like a lot. That feels like a lot. For our <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we uh, we have a we have a guest today, all the way from the UK, and um, his name's Jimmy Madden. He is a uh, he's a singer, guitar player. Um, he is. Uh, he's got a self-titled album nice. that he released in 2020 that I want to talk to you about. Uh, what's going on, Jimmy? Hey, lad! Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, all the way from England, Sheffield in England. Uh, just as the weather starts to turn, so it's starting to get cold here all of a sudden again. <laughs> is is that how far away from London is that? London's the only place I've ever been. And, uh, London's uh, about two hours south. Uh, so Sheffield, if you look at England on the map, Sheffield's just about as sort of smack bang in the centre as you you probably can get, really. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's still we're still considered the north, still very patriotic in the north. <laughs> I loved. I love. Have you ever been to England? No, I've been to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> They, uh, <laughs> it's funny. I, I told my, uh, I told my daughter that you were coming on today. I was like, yeah, we have a guest all the way from England. And she was like, you don't speak British. <laughs> <laughs> you barely speak English. I know. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not sure that school's doing a good enough job on her. That's my point. The closest I've been is uh, my girlfriend and uh, my mom and my sister, and almost everyone I know sets their uh, their navigation with the British voice. Oh, you know okay, what I mean? Yeah, like the the GPS, the GPS. Yeah. Accent. So it's always I don't know why, it just sounds different. I don't know what around. I think you're going to get lost. It's better in an English accent. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree with you, 100. percent There is something disarming about it, right? Like it's true. Like you don't mind as much. I oh, guess. when they when the guy was um, doing the infomercials, the the one British guy, I would buy anything from him. It sounds like legit. Yeah, it couldn't. It doesn't matter what he's on. It just sounds real. So, Jimmy, um, your. Uh, you're uh, you're about to start a tour, or you're you're on tour. I... Yeah, um, about to start a tour around the around the UK, um, and then I'm sort of in a way the tour sort of starting a little bit. We've done a few theater shows and stuff like that. Um, myself and another musician here, Steve Walker, sort of teamed up together on the road, um, and then hopefully uh, early next year, so around March time, be across the pond in your neck of the woods. Uh, which should be exciting. Yeah, that's um, that is exciting. Have you have you been to the US before? No, I've never actually been to the states, not even for for an holiday. So uh, I'm sort of really looking forward to the idea of finally getting getting across. Really, um, problem is, is there's so many parts in America I won't go to. You know, I mean, I'm a big Elvis fan. It's part of me that wants to go to like Memphis, you know, and, yeah. and Graceland and. Um, you know, like guys like the New York Dolls, obviously, I want to go see like where they and the remote and stuff are playing. And yeah, like, is it man, Max's Max Watts or something? Max's, is Max's Kansas City, yeah, That's Max's Kansas, yeah, you know. Um, so and then, of course, there's you got the Whiskey a Go Go where like the Doors were playing in uh, in the early 60s, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's just about uh, it's something to get across to try and relive some of this music history, really. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, if you if you do if you do make it to New York, uh, I'm happy to come give you a tour of the city 
and uh, some, some of the cool spots. I uh, do know when it comes to New York, I sort of know that the every tourist must go past Tom's Diner or Tom's Restaurant from, from the outside of Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> I'll try and keep my real touristy gimmicks as, as short as I can for you. Um, <laughs> I get all the pointing out of the way and all the photo taking uh, in the first half hour. <laughs> so um, you mentioned the New York Dolls and I, I was listening to your album, uh, your 2020 album, and it's uh, it's I, it's very clearly glam rock influenced. I feel like you wear your influences on your sleeve, uh, which isn't which isn't a bad thing. Um, but I hear I hear in the album I hear a lot of T Rex. I hear Queen. I hear Bowie. Um, Keep talking dirty to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and and then I was I was just going through uh, some of your Facebook page, and it, it seems like it seems like Queen is is your number one artist, if I had to guess. Yeah, I'm glad to see that I keep that nice and low key, really. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, Queen, Queen really is the number one. They're, they're the, the musical bible, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, I think everything that they did was brilliant, and uh, it's nice now with, I suppose, the success that the films had and their current tours now that I can speak about them with more people. We're on high school. Uh, you know, I'll try and talk to people about Queen and for all intents and purposes, they were a, a dead band in terms of they hadn't done anything. They obviously hadn't released records for ages. And, you know, they were the sort of band where you, your folks were listening to them on the radio and, you know, the Golden uh, Oldies, Goldies sort of station. So, yeah. you know, I, I found that they were really, in a way, something that were only mine growing up that no one else really wanted to know about. Um, but I just think they're brilliant, you know. Um, and uh, so I try and bring a lot of what they do into my own recordings with the harmonies and trying to, the orchestral arrangements. Um, I'd love to have strings and stuff on my records, but, you know, it's just one other expense that uh, already adds up to what's an expensive endeavour to record. So I've sort of tried to take a leap out of the Brian May book in terms of having the orchestral arrangements with the guitar. And I've really loved the idea of how far can I take the guitar um, in terms of creating these, you know, arrangements. Um, I don't know why I think they sound right, but uh, the jury's out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember... Um... Like, how old were you when you discovered Queen? Or, or do you remember, was there a, a song or an album that just lit the spark? My recollection is always loving them, you know. I mean, my my parents, to be fair to them, had a great taste in, in you know, music. So I was aware of them from a very early age. Um I suppose I probably remember hearing like Bohemian Rhapsody in the car because it'd just be on, you know, on the radio stations as we go along. But I think album-wise, I remember uh, would be early high school. And I saved up some money from whatever I think I was working like a chippy or something at the time, and saved up um, money and bought a night at the opera, and had you know. I remember putting it on, and this is well before things of Spotify and music being on YouTube, and you know we could track whole albums. So, I was aware of the hits off the record, but you know I got to sit back and experience the album from start to finish. Uh, and I would have been fourteen or fifteen, maybe, and uh, uh, and and able to take in everything they'd done, and that's such an eclectic album. And that probably sowed the seeds, I think, for a lot of the um, the going right. That's what I'm going to going to try and and do, albeit perhaps a bit poorly. But or, or you know, I'm, I'm going to try and do it. So I remember at a very young age having this fascination with how can I create, you know, gospel harmonies uh, as myself in the studio because. You know, I record everything myself, but I do remember uh, a mate of mine in high school, his dad had a bunch of recording equipment, mm -hmm. uh, an old analog tape reel, so reel to reel. 
and we used to record tracks on there that bits that I were writing and he would drum across them. And I remember saying, let's build all these harmonies on it, but it was only a four track uh, tape. Uh, and then we worked out that, and this is the, you know, you know, when you're young and full of energy and, and uh, excitement to get things on, <laughs> we worked out that if we fed it through the speakers to play it, with a microphone in front and ran it back to another set of speakers, we could kind of bounce them down onto one track. So, you know, we were multi-layering uh, this real to real. I mean, I wouldn't have the energy to think about doing it now. <laughs> now um, that everything's digital, you don't have to worry about that anymore. But Exactly. But it was, it was, you know, that interesting idea of, you know, how in bedroom as well, mind you, you know, how can we play speakers and apps and sort of daisy chain them all up so we could keep, I mean, we must have bounced the audio down hundreds of times. I'm sure in the end it all sounded quite, you know, quite stilt and quite bad, but somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in my bones, I, I have the recordings. <laughs> but there's, there's something romantic about that, right? Like experimenting with your sound and trying to figure out how to make things sound like you've got the money to make them sound the way you want. When, that was my favorite part of Bohemian Rhapsody when they showed them in the studio swinging the microphone in front of the amps and, and really getting creative with the engineering part of the music business. I, I do feel that part is lost for musicians now because you know, so many you know, when, when I was growing up anyway, you know, uh, the, the, the technology of home recording was really just kind of becoming at a level, I suppose, that you could look into it. You know, where, where now you can have a laptop and directly plug your guitar straight into it and have any amplification sound that you want in the yeah. world. I remember trying to mic up, you know, it's a little like bad beginner practice amps you get when you start, you know, trying to mic them up and distort the settings and, you know, try and mic in different ways to get different sounds. So you're right, there's something that was romantic about the whole finding your feet, you know, and trying to find my sound within, yeah, as a guitarist and a, and a bass player and a singer, Maybe, maybe they don't have now, maybe it's, maybe it's too easy. Um, or perhaps I've finally hit that age where, you know, it was different in my day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. With with them making everything easy, I think every, we also got a little lazy. Instead, oh, I think, I think yeah, you, you know it, what I mean? It, it, it's funny in, in a way. I mean, I think the technology growth is brilliant, you know, but it's also... Uh, it, it, it is too easy sometimes, yeah. you know. You know and we, I've been in the studio and they've just said, oh, we can fix this one note that I've hit wrong in the solo. So the rest of it's fine. And you play one note and they just kind of drop it in somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in, it's in three clicks of a button. It, sometimes it, it seems to... Um, sometimes it does seem a bit too easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always liked... Uh, like growing up listening to those live albums from the 70s, I, I always liked hearing the mistakes. I thought that's what made it so interesting and and it reinforced like, oh yeah, this is live. Yeah. Like things things can go wrong. And how but how how do you, how do you carry on yeah. from it? You know, and like I say to people, some nights I'll go for a certain note and I'll, I'll hit it, and other nights I'll woefully, you know, misjudge it. But that's the art of, of playing live is, is you never quite know exactly what you're going to do, you know, even when you play it night after night. Um, and uh, so I, I think, you know, you, you're right, hearing that, hearing it live and hearing the mistakes. I mean, at the end of the day, the day music is... Um, it's not necessarily about perfection. I don't know. That's always been my excuse to never becoming, you know, learning music. I've always been a big believer that musicians can be overtrained and too far into perfection. You know, I know some technically brilliant guitarists who just don't have any feel to their playing anymore. Yeah. Um, I think you've got to know what you're doing. Um, but you, you, I think you've got there's a fine line between knowing too much. Yes. Yeah. And there, I think when you're technically almost perfect, it takes a lot of the uh, heart and soul 
Yeah. Out of the music. Yeah, you're pretty much a robot at that point. Yeah. But like at the end of the tour, if you're still doing what you're doing at the beginning of the tour, then, I mean, what are you doing? Yeah. That's... You got to mix it up a little bit. And you can see a lot of, uh, if it's a good band and they have a good chemistry, you can tell right away that anything can happen. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like I've seen, every time I've seen The Stones, uh, Keith Richards fucks up every single song that he plays. <laughs> Without fail, he doesn't know, he doesn't know the lyrics to his own songs. Um but he just sing. He stands there uh, with the biggest smile, and you could tell that he still loves it so much, and it's still just uh, he still has this like burning passion for it. That I'm like, I don't even care that he doesn't know the words. Yeah, I don't care that he just played the wrong note. Like this is perfection to me. Yeah, and I think that's the thing too is. You know, you can play it as many times. Like, he must have played those riffs millions of times. But when you have to do it, sometimes it has in the wrong place, you know, or you, you're, you're a beat behind. And uh, I think that's a thrill to, to play and play live is you never really know where on the stage you're going to be at any time or, or you know, if you're left-handed, actually going to play the chord that it's supposed to. <laughs> Um, tell me about your other influences besides Queen. I said I hear I I clear I hear a lot of T Rex. Yeah, I think the T Rex ones an intro. I sort of become more aware of it over the last couple of years. I think because I was hearing it from a lot of people. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of classics. I was aware of growing up, but I can't say they're like on the list of of you know big bands are into and I don't know if that Sarah influence has influenced you know other musicians who I've heard and over the last couple of years I, the more I've gotten into them the more it's like <laughs> you know where they you know where where was I when when you know these records were, were available um, Bowie was a bit the same as well so often surprises people that I didn't grow up with a Bowie uh, not really mm-hmm. Um I sort of found there's a bit of a love hate with him early when I was an early teenager, but again, later on getting into him now, I, I think maybe I'm a bit more evolved musically now to appreciate the, the genius of what he was doing, particularly with the early albums. But again, I think those two guys influenced so many people who I was influenced by uh, that, that, that influence has come into me. But I mean, some of the other ones that, you know, I mean, Recent, like a big Motley Crue fan and, and love the stuff that they do. Mm-hmm. As I said, the doors, I think when I was 16, you know, I couldn't get enough of the doors. It's just Jim Morrison was, you know, a big focus. Um, and even still now, I still wear tight leather uh, pants to, to I feel like him. And I mean, not just on stage, I mean, down to the local, if I'm going to Tesco. You know, I mean, I've always loved guys like Rod Stewart, Status Quo, um, the cars. I thought the cars were brilliant. Yeah, when you're a teenager, the cars, music, they just write brilliantly for. They were so, they were so great, and I think so uh, underappreciated. In, in there, I actually just watched um, on YouTube. They had the second Taylor Hawkins tribute concert last night, and I just mm. saw. Um, Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age came out with Elliot Easton from the Cars and they did uh, Shake It Up and uh, You're All I've Got Tonight, I think. I think that was it, yeah. But they, they, they sounded like with the Foo Fighters as the backing band and Elliot Easton and I'm like, fuck, those songs are so great. I think, you know, I've always sort of got a bit of a viewpoint that the good music as naff as sometimes as maybe the lyrics can be with certain songs, uh, I think if there's musical validity to what what they're doing, you know, it it it's still good, um, you know. And uh, so a lot of those bands, some of them had had some kind of silly songs out in the seventies. I still think the fact that they still live on today, um, like Ted Moore again, "Come Jump in My Car," stuff like that, you yeah. know, br- still brilliant songs now and. and um, 
whether they've aged well or not. But I think really, influence-wise, I was just a bit of a sponge for anything that particularly came at that glam rock era. I just love the theatrics of it. Early Marillion as well in the Fish era. Uh, was a big fan of Rod Stewart. Um, Rod Stewart, when I, when, when I tell people that I'm a huge Rod Stewart fan, I get such looks. And p- people have no idea that, like, he he was one of the great rock and roll front men for faces were one of the all time great, like just sloppy drunk rock playing. And he was, uh, he, he was an incredible front man, you know, and then the eighties came along and I, I think even he would admit he got lazy and, uh, but, um, yeah, those, those, those old those old Rod Stewart albums still sound great. I still play those a lot. Yeah. I think what, you know, what I find the most interesting thing with a guy like Rod Stewart and probably a bit to the Rolling Stones on that as well, um, you know, I've got a bit of a, a theory uh, with, with any type of band or musician that, you know, when you're young and you're 20 and you're 30 and you look good and everything, it, it, you can do anything and it's a hit. Um, and people love it. And then you get to what I call the Robbie Williams phase, where <laughs> you're in your mid-40s, early 50s, you go on grade, the body's not what it was. Uh, you know, it, obviously, you, you, most of them are sober by that point. And you're just your uncle, you're like, Dad, Rob, there, there, there's this element of you that, that doesn't matter what you do, you're always going to be seen as like that. Dad, your uncle, or my mum listens to him. And then you get to the Rose Stewart, the Rolling Stones, the Queen end of things, the uh, Mark Knopfler's and uh, Tony Iommi sort of look where yeah, you've got grey hair, you walk past it, but no one cares because you almost you come full circle, you're trendy again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people love you again because I think people go, oh shit, like fucking hell, like you might die, we've got to go see him. You know, which is my justification and buying tickets for a lot of bands that I see. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there's this sort of, it's really interesting, guys like Rod Stewart and, and these older rock stars who, I think, and there's been a big surge of like Elton John recently has kind of come back in through the film, like some touch on Motley Crue as well. Um, that these guys, you know, I mean, Motley Crue at the moment, too, with Joan Jett and Poison, they've just wrapped um, up that yeah, big. Definitely. Def Leppard, yeah, and Sheffield uh, based band as well. The, the these guys are bringing more back with them. I think we're seeing it in the charts as well. Um, but you know, it, it's this interesting thing of when you get to that point where you, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you know you just got to play the hits. I've heard Rod Stewart talk about this, where he releases records all the time. He says they're for him, really. No one goes out and buys them because he knows when he plays live, he's just got to play the 12 hits. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, as an unashamed Robbie Williams fan, I'm looking forward to when he gets past the unfortunately named Robbie Williams phase, uh, <laughs> which is coming for me. That phase is looming for me, which is a, a worry. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, look at what happened. I think the perfect example of what you're talking about is uh, like Phil Collins or, yeah. or Hall and Oates. Like they they had massive success when they were young and then and then music uh tastes change and evolve and then they're and then they kind of become the punchline to a joke for a long time. And then enough time passes where people realize, oh, these were actually great fucking yeah, songs. Yeah. These were monster hits. That uh, or they make a documentary or a, a movie. Right. I, I remember the the first Queen revival was with Wayne's World. Yeah, when they did that Bohemian Rhapsody in the car, and then everyone was buying buying them again, and then yeah, it's the um, you know I think that's a, the, the I suppose that's the probably the power of music in general. So the film's got nothing to do with Queen, you know, fundamentally. But when you mention Wayne's World, everyone goes yeah. straight to it's either the No Stairway to Heaven sign, yeah, uh, <laughs> or yeah. which is brilliant as far as I'm concerned. Um, I do love Zeppelin, but if I hear that riff one more time by someone who's only just started learning the guitar, yeah, uh, it's up there with Wonderwall. You know, 
if you if you see a guitar don't fucking play either of those two songs yeah for god there's so many more songs um you know but yeah it, it's the people come back to that that scene that song i think that's what makes music you know i mean i've always been a believer that music is more of a a soundtrack to someone's life than, yes. than anything else. You know, I remember, you know, what I was listening to the first summer I got a license and got a car, you know, driving through the city and down the, the, you know, motorways with the windows down and, uh, and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, so it, it's all those sort of things that they're what you remember when it comes to songs where you hear a song, you go, Oh, I remember that girl I kissed to this. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that, you know, and you go, oh, what happened to that bird where she ended up? <laughs> yeah, and then you go look on Facebook and you're like, I I should have left that in the past. I should, <laughs> I should have held on well, to that memory. <laughs> funny, funny you mentioned that because a lot of my songs obviously are about like birds that I date or come across in, in the, the early hours in the morning. And uh, it's a strange thing because you can start playing a song and even I do it now, songs I wrote when I was 18, 19. Um, you find yourself as you're playing them live, not after I'm going, oh, I wonder what ever happened to her or something. And then <laughs> two or three minutes later, you're thinking about a different girl. Yeah. And then very few songs really now have got to a point where they don't have the meaning. They all still envision some, even when I'm rehearsing or I hear them out somewhere or my own track's been played, you, you can't help but think about who that was written about. I think if you ever got to a point where I was completely removed from the meaning of the song, I'd have to stop playing it because if you don't believe what you're singing, I think that comes across to, oh, the, you know. The audience you know, sniffs that out for sure, right? Like where, yeah. um, where stand-up comedian, Chris actually a musician and a stand-up comedian. Um, but I, I know for me when I'm on stage, if I'm telling a joke and I'm only telling it because I know I have time to fill and uh, it's not a joke that I'm excited about anymore and you just kind of go into autopilot. No, they know. Yeah, they 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 definitely sense it. Like you you feel you feel the lull. You feel it come down. Yes. And I, I found that with the song off the record called Anarchy Stilettos that the early foundations of the record go back to when I was 16. Um, and funnily enough, I actually found the original handwritten lyrics uh, not so long ago and we're having a look over them. And I was a bit surprised at how much of the original lyrics are still in the song today. The second half of the track seems to reference lots of sort of trying to be overly poetic about cigarette smoke and the walls and the ceilings and so and within nightclubs and stuff. While I was writing that at 16, I, I won't know, but, um, you know, uh, but it, it's funny, that song's been played so much and it's evolved over the years and end up on the record. And when it got on the record, it was like that. That was like the song that had to be on the first album because it just been played. You know, I toured, I played it in, well, I toured Asia, across Australia, uh, across the UK. You know, it's been played almost every show I played it. But I got to a point where I got so fed up with it, I just couldn't rehearse it. I, I couldn't hear it. You know, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And I dropped it from the set for a while. And I remember having a few people come up and say, oh, what happened? Why aren't you playing? Like with celebrities. And I would say that I just, I'm over it. And they go, no, but we love, you know, we've heard it for so long, we love it. And I realized that I had to fall back in love with it yeah. because I don't get to choose the set list because it's, you know, I'm a believer in the songs of mine when I write them and when I record them. But the moment that they get released, they become the people's, you know, they choose what they like, what they don't like, what's a hit, what's not a hit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they took to that and that was their song and they want to hear that when they're pay money to come and see me so I'd find a way to fall back in love with it and for a while I'd slightly will play it, I think slower and a bit of a medley with things just to keep me interested and I've got back to a point now where I'm uh, you know have to play it in full as it were um, but it was a sort of an interesting lesson because I know that Robert Plant refused to play Stairway to Heaven for about 20 years or yes. so um, I've never really particularly agreed. I get where it's coming from. It wasn't relevant, but, you know, I think if you go and see Robert Plant, you know, you want to hear it. There's certain songs that you... Of course. You Did know, you ever see you the Stones and they didn't do a Satisfaction? Or? Yeah, no, but, I, you know, I, I get 
I get how like oh god I got like I like Bruce playing Born to Run every single set that he's ever had. Yeah. You know, it's I I don't know how you uh cuz I get tired like I'm I'm tired of two jokes that I wrote a month ago and I've maybe done them 10 times. But that's fine because the people don't enjoy it anyway. <laughs> that's a fair point. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I can see the difference there. We're talking about the audience responding to what we're doing. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying like as a performer, I'm like, I can't, I'm, I'm sick of it. Stale I can't as soon do as it, it. Leaves your mouth. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I don't know how, uh, I don't know. Like I used to go when I used to see the Stones, it would be half hits and half like deep cuts and blues covers. And then as they've gotten older, it's just become more and more straight hits, which um, I know is what the majority of people want for me. Like for me as a diehard fan, I'm like, I don't need to hear brown sugar or satisfaction i want to hear the deep cuts yeah um but i guess you do have to give the people what you want and it's it's just a matter of figuring like you said like how do you fall back in love with it i think yeah it's hard because you almost got to fall back in love with it really quickly because as you said if you don't believe it when you're singing it you know i mean that's the slowest about three and a half minutes it's a long time to kind of ask your way through mm-hmm. a track because you start to get distracted and move around. And I play it that much. I know how many steps to the left of the microphone I can take in the little solo part and come back to the next verse and, you know, stuff like that, like the back of my hand. So you've got to find a way to, you do have to, to you know, really quickly fall back in love with it. And sometimes it can be, you know, what I tend to do if I need to refine a passion for, for something is I will literally go back to what I play when I start playing the guitar. I will try and not pick it up for a, a few days. And I do, I don't play any of my own tracks. I don't write anything. I'll just pick up and start playing, you know, like when I first learned the guitar, I was playing Johnny Cash, yeah. you know. I wanted to look like Johnny Cash and Elvis. So I had the quiff and everything and, you know, at the time it was, it's trendy now, but it was not trendy to have that sort of Elvis quiff. Um, when I was at the start of high school, very much this strange kid at high school with Elvis Quiffs and, yeah. you know, um, I'm going to be a pop star and stuff like that. And I was no good at music at that point. I arguably still not, but, <laughs> but you're at doing the time it. really, really wasn't. Um, but I had a big ambition and drive and I thought, I know what I'm going to be, whether anyone else did or not. Um, but you know, I was playing Elvis and, and Johnny Cash and, um, you know, uh, Little Richard and, and stuff like Chuck Berry and, and those sort of early, really a lot of early fifties stuff is kind of, I sort of definitely trying to live in a different era than the one that I was born into. Yeah. Um, and I was playing a lot of it. So now when I pick up the guitar, I would just rip into Folsom Prison Blues or, you know, jailhouse rock or, or some of, um, you know, like baby, let's play house. One of those Elvis, early Elvis tracks. And I'll go, that's what I find a passion. That's what I love playing it for. Then when I come back to my own stuff, I sort of come into it from a different, I remember why I suppose in a way, cause this caper does become a job at a certain point in time. So it's like, you got to remind yourself why you got into this sometimes, because in today's world, it's not just, writing the songs and performing the songs, there's all the other bollocks in social media that goes with it. And sometimes I can spend a week just on social media without picking up a guitar and it'd be more important than if I did. So sometimes you need to take the break and, and remember why why the main criteria of this is is playing music. Yeah. How much of a drag is that for you, like having to figure out social media and, and trying to hit algorithms? and It takes up probably more of my thoughts than I would like it to. Um, it's a hard one because they change so often and you have to, I tried to resist it for a long time uh, and fight, you know, I had all the pages, but I never really posted, and, you know, and I sort of realized if you don't join me, you know, uh, if so it can't be, you've got to join them. Yeah. Because a lot of the problems that, that musicians and you guys were seeing this in the comedic industry as well, I'm sure is, you know, I heard something from, a couple of years ago, someone listened to my record. Uh, he used to work for a record label and didn't, but he liked it. 
But I remember him saying that if he still worked for the record label, it would have been an uphill battle to get me any interest. Not because the music, he said the music was fine, but I didn't have enough followers on Facebook. Yeah. Then yeah. I thought that's metal, isn't it? That, yeah. And that's they're, a lot they're of to promote music. A lot of um, bookers that we have check and see how many followers you got. And, yeah, and, they'll. Oh, you you only have a thousand followers? No, we're not going to book you. Yeah, it's all about yeah. getting people to buy tickets, and you know. Which, and, and the problem I've had is a blessing and the curse. I've toured around the world. Is that my numbers are quite? I mean, they're not as high as obviously. I suppose there is no there's a, there's not a finite number of numbers you like to have. But I've had venues go, oh, wow, look, you've got a couple of thousand. And then I go, yeah, but, you know, some of them are in Australia and some of them are in yeah, yeah. Asia and then some of them are in Europe and America. So, you know, a lot in America. Um, and and so it's a, it, it's a false economy, social media numbers, but I know how important it is. I do love social media in the sense of I, I love what what it can do is taking me who would have been relatively unknown and grew up in a very, you know, nondescript suburb and we're, you know, a place that no one else had become successful from. And it's the sort of place that you went to the local high school and then got a job in the local area, probably married somebody you went to high school with, yeah. bought a house in that same suburb and repeated the cycle, Yeah, you know, and it was like one pub that everyone go into and one shopping center. So for me, the idea of getting out and doing something different were, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't a place that was designed for that. And social media has made it accessible for me to go out in the world and build, get this opportunity in America. You know, I mean, even this very interview now was a byproduct of, of social media. You yes, know, it yeah, was how right. I first came across first came across your, your, your show, um, you know, a, a while back. And it's that sort of, I love it. I hate it that it's so much emphasis. I hate the fact I put a post up and the first 20 minutes I'm analyzing how many interactions it's had because yeah. I know how that works through the algorithm. Yeah. But I love the fact I can put a post up and I can see what you guys are doing in, in New York and, you know, I can see what Brian May's doing at 76 or whatever it is, yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, and, and things like that. So Necessary I, I do, I think it probably needs to be refined. There's middle ground somewhere with the algorithms, but um, particularly through COVID, it was a, it was a godsend in the fact that I was able, I didn't, because I lost a big tour in COVID. When COVID hit, I lost a big six week tour of England and Europe. I wasn't in the country at the time. Um, and, you know, that was a bit of pill. And then the album come out and everyone was in lockdown and there was no album launch party. There's yeah. no strippers and cocaine and, you know, <laughs> anything like that. None of the rock and roll decadence that should have been there. We're saving that for you to get in, here. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I remember when the record come out, I was living on my own. I was on my own in the house at the time and woke up and sort of went, okay, well, that's, that then and then it was to go on social media to see what the reaction were it was a very strange way of uh, you know having a big a big event you know there will only ever be one debut album and it's an interesting story I'm glad in a way I've had that unique experience don't need to do it again when the next one comes out <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know it's that sort of um, yeah it, it's uh COVID really made it because again, I just lost shows. I tried doing some live gigs. I don't know how you guys found it. Probably even harder as comedians. Horrible. But they were, they my were shows, awful. Yeah. It's the thing, but what people don't understand is my shows are quite interactive. I get trying to get people clapping and singing along. If you know the words, there's certain parts of songs that the crowd theoretically, if they know what they're doing, take over. Um, and I, it was very strange to be sitting in like a living room playing the songs to a phone like that. And then when you end, there's nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then you start the next song, and then all the reactions come through on the screen. So you're trying to read the comments and play, and also the professional set. Yeah. I thought, no, box that. I thought, that's I'm not going to do that any longer. So I packed that in pretty quick. I think I only did like one or two of them. Um, but through COVID, you know, social media was, was definitely um, probably the only thing that really kept the momentum going without a tour and being actually heavily 
promote the physically promote the album. But I got lucky that I had a lot of good people in my corner at the time, particularly out of America, who pushed it really hard and, and helped me. Good. Yeah, that's great. Um I love uh I love what you were saying before about going back and playing Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Johnny Cash and Elvis, because they're such um that to me is such American music. And um, I was watching. Have you seen Have you seen Moon Age Daydream yet? The David Bowie documentary. No, not yet. No, I just saw it. Uh, I I would um, highly recommend you see it on mushrooms if uh, if that's your sort of thing. Uh, ten out of ten experience. But um, there's You're probably watching Judge Judy. <laughs> you don't even know it. You were so baked. <laughs> There's a there's a part where he was saying um, that one of his earliest memories as a boy was hearing Little Richard on the radio in in England. And he said he couldn't like he knew that the words were English, but he couldn't make sense of them because this guy was singing about something so far away and so different than what he knew that it may as well have been another language. But he said the feeling that the music gave him was, oh, that's where I want to be. Like, I, I don't know what this guy's singing about, but wherever it is, I want to be there. And I want to experience that. And um, I thought that was such a cool statement on the power of what music can do uh, around the world. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, I think that there's... Because I've got to be a little bit careful sometimes. So I look, put a lot of like British references into, into lyrics and stuff like that. And British slang, particularly up in, in the north, it's very, you know, the slang up here is very much different from what you hear in London, um, which is probably the same in parts of the States, to be fair, as well. Um, you know, so it, I, I've got to be sometimes a bit aware that I'm not putting in so many foreign references that, you know, only Yorkshiremen are, are, are going to know what I'm on about. Um, but you're right, I think as long as the feeling's there, because sometimes I've listened to records in other languages or when I've been in Asia and to seen other bands play, and you can't help but go, bloody hell, that's good. You don't know what they're singing about. Yeah. But, you know, you, you just know it, it, it's good. Um, and I think that's, that's probably why a lot of, like, that rock and roll music in, like, the early 60s and 70s was heavily influenced with, you know, I mean, the Beatles took all that, the, the Indian sounds out of India, and then the Stones were doing a lot of reggae-inspired mm -hmm. stuff. Keith Richards was living in, in, you know, the Caribbean at the time and brought that that vibe in, and which led into post the punk scene and being a, a big lover of The Clash. Yeah. Uh, and the whole punk movement as well. And a 16-year-old me fucking loved the punk movement of the British punk movement. You know, I was awful. Yeah, bring down Margaret Thatcher. Didn't know what that meant. Bring down Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but The Clash were sort of this reggae band in a way to begin with who rode the wave. It kind of went back to that reggae funk sound, you know, and then the whole 80s, that that black funk soul movement that's all its ties come back from these other cultures that that we sort of took and, and influenced into the music you know and whether they knew what what they were doing with that at the time or not you know i i, I don't know yeah well i guess uh i'm thinking of, like i was trying to think of my own experience and i like that first one the first time i heard that first arctic monkeys album and, oh, whatever people say, that's yeah. what I'm not. And yeah. that is, that's, it's loaded with uh, tons of uh, British slang. I, I don't know what the fuck he's saying. And in, in I don't know what he's talking about in half the songs, but it resonated so deeply with me. I was like, I don't know what they're singing about, but I know it's very cool. And I, I wish I was there with them while it was happening. Yeah, I think... I mean, some of the American music can be the same as well that I've, I've heard, that there's certain references to, um, you know, there's a, I mean, like Lou Reed, I, I think, who I think is a genius, yeah. you know. Um, some of the references in, in things that he throws in, there's so, and Tom Petty was another great Americana-style singer who just had these references. But in, in a way, you kind of feel like when you, you know, listen to... Uh, 
those guys that you could be in in their in their shoes, or no doubt would be in potentially on Beale Street and be thinking of uh, you know the song with the boss where he sings about uh, you know walking on Beale Street or walking in Memphis and stuff like that. So those references, well, I think once you get there, you go, oh, that makes sense, and that makes sense, and that makes sense. You know, which is uh, I think is a pretty pretty cool thing about music. Uh, I think comedy as well, you know, a big comedy lovers in a lot of comedians over, over the journey. And sometimes they reference things like, oh, what's that about? But you laugh because, you know, when you, know, you don't get a joke, but the whole room is laughing. You find yourself laughing with and having a good time. And then years later, you kind of figure out what the reference was. And it makes you laugh, <laughs> you know, it makes me laugh again. Um, yeah, I think that's that brilliant that, that, that those, any sort of art form like that, it's an everlasting input, really. If you do it right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. That's the, that's the key to there's, it. Yeah. There's my top tip for any like young musicians that are watching this. Whatever you do, just do it right. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you could make uh, like a, uh, you know, we have fantasy football over here. You'd pick, put your whole team together. If you have a four piece band, alive or dead, singer, guitarist, bassist, drummer, go. Ooh. He's just going to be like Queen. Yeah, it's going to be like Frank they're Mercury, picking, they're all gonna be Brian different. May. They don't have to yeah. work. Just imagine like the dream team. What would it be? Well, I think it'd be, you know, imagine uh, Tommy Lee drumming over like Elvis Presley with a bit of Eddie Van Halen, you know, on one side and then maybe John Entwistle on the other. Just take the oh. weirdest collection of, of musicians that you could and try and see if they can make, you know, that particularly that, you know, you know, in later in Elvis's career when he's doing that real sort of croony, soulful sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Trying to get him singing that over some sort of just, you know, mesh of, of, of musicians trying to go as fast as they can. <laughs> I think that will be there's a there's a money idea. It'd be something to see. Someone, sure. Thing is with technology now, someone's gonna piece that together. They're gonna be able to pull stems from all these different guys and somewhere online now. Absolutely. We'll be, we'll, we'll be, we'll be that. I like how fast you have that answer. Um what what do you think of uh what do you think of like Queen carrying on? With first with Paul Rogers, then with Adam Lambert. Really good question because I think it's probably a bit more simple than you know I like it or I don't. Personally, I like it. It's given me a chance to see him. Right. I would never have seen Brian and Roger play the Queen songs in the same room without it. So without them doing that, younger fans like me would never have got the chance. And. You know, I mean, they would have been in their mid-40s when Freddie died. Yeah. Suddenly, you're almost forcibly retired at 45. You've gone from playing Wembley Stadium to a year later, retired. I I think it's one thing about, in a way, the only saving grace about being a solo musician is, you know, I won't won't find this, but think about guys with the doors. Yes. You know, they've got four albums in six years, all in their mid-20s, and then... You can't go and work a day job, could, no. you know, could you? <laughs> Realistically. But I think, you know, when, when a key band member like that dies, I mean, ACDC successfully carried on uh, when Bon Scott yep. went. Um, I mean, other, other bands were the least singers left, like Van Halen and stuff like that. But I think, you know, the selection's got to be right. I, I suppose it's probably because there's been a lot of bands that have tried and failed to replace members. Um, but I, I think in, in a way you have, to, you have to be open to the idea or fans have to be open to the idea, but because otherwise what are these guys going to do for the rest of their lives? Right. Um, you know, like uh, John Desmore could have played on with anyone over the last couple of decades, but he's still always going to be John Desmore from the doors. Right. And, you know, that becomes their identity. Brian May is always going to be Brian May for Queen. He went out after Freddie died and did a solo tour, had the Brian May band, played all Queen songs, um, but it wasn't, the albums never charted and, you know, they didn't play any great stadiums. And I think you get everyone in these groups get drawn back to the the mothership or whatever you want to call it. So I think more so, I think fans have to be open to the idea because, you're a long time retired if you and, and as I said, you can't go from playing Wembley Stadium or um 
any of the major ones over in, you know, Madison Square, right. for example. And then, you know, uh, and then you, you've stopped because there's something outside of your control. But you've got to do the section right. And to be fair to Queen, I, I think they've they've got that one right. Probably by a lot of luck than, you know, anything else. And I think they'll be the first to admit that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. So I, I was thinking about that yesterday. Because I, I grew up, I was, I mean, everybody I knew loved Queen. I, I was a huge Queen fan. Um, so then I was thinking like how, like it's, it, like I think about what you say, like these guys now, what they just have to be retired for the rest of their lives. And, and they wrote these songs too. It's not like Freddie didn't write every one of those songs. It was like a band effort. Um, like they can't go out and play those songs anymore. So I went on YouTube, but then the other, but then the other part of me is like, well, how the fuck do you replace Freddie Mercury? Yeah, like that was my view is there's a few very key reasons why it's worked. One were it had been decades since yep. Freddie yes. gone. Yeah, it weren't fresh. It weren't new. Because did the Doors not release an album with someone another singer? They, they did. The they right after Jim Morrison died, they released an album. I think it was just like with Robbie Krieger singing. And that, I, I, yeah. could, I could be wrong about. It. I could, I, but I think it was Robbie Krieger singing. And um. I didn't even know that album existed until a few months ago. Like I was reading up on them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I think Queen in a way left it long enough. I think what helped as well is they're not saying that they're Queen. They're saying it's a Queen name. It's Brian Roger plus Adam Lambert. They're very clear on the branding that this is not Queen. It's a separate band. It's a tribute band, if if anything. Um, And I've got two big views on this. One, because Adam's American, he doesn't sound is as brilliant, and he's brilliant. He's a great singer, but he doesn't. No matter how hard he tries, he can never sound like Freddie because the accents are just different, you know. And two, because you know he he is openly out himself and quite flamboyant. His personal flamboyant when he performs songs, the natural showmanship and um, uh, you know. Charismatic that comes out in his performance. It doesn't look like someone trying to be Freddie with the, the struts and stuff like that. He right. had. I think that's why it works. You've got someone who naturally fits the music, like the, the flow of the music on stage. Because there's a certain way you got to move to Queen Songs. Everyone's seen how Freddie does it. You can't help but do it in your living room. When you've got the Hoover out, you know, and uh, I Want to Break Free comes right. on. And I think the accent, but two, I just think that everyone sort of accepted there's this young singer just letting these guys go out there and have some fun. They've got no intention of releasing a record, you know, with them. It's purely like, let's just, I think it's a bit of fun too. Let's just go and do this while we can. Yeah. I think they, I don't think they ever expected it to blow up because the whole Paul Rogers thing was, was quite some time before it. Yeah. The- you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really, they weren't trying to reproduce what they had with Freddie where, like I said, other bands, uh, other bands have. I mean, and it's an interesting one because some bands have been more successful with new singers in it. I think. Um, uh, well, ACDC, who you mentioned before, they were more successful. Van Halen was more successful. Stepped in for um, Peter Gabriel. Yeah, they. Yeah, yeah, and they'll probably arguably, you know, uh, there and um, same with like Van Halen. You know, which which singer or which era is mm-hmm. the the better one? Um. But it's hard, you know. It, 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 I, I can only imagine how hard it would be to get the chemistry with, with someone else to work. Well, I, so I wanted to say, so I, I went on to YouTube and I saw there was a queen with Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers, the singer from Bad Company. He has a great voice, doesn't sound anything at all like Freddie Mercury. Um, but there's a concert on YouTube that they played uh, in the Ukraine and it looked like it was maybe to a hundred thousand people. It was a massive audience. And I watched and I was like, this is probably going to suck. And I watched it and I couldn't believe how good it was. And I remember they, they put out an album, a new music where it was like Queen plus Paul Rogers and the album. Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't even think it's in print anymore. I went looking for it digitally yesterday and couldn't even find it. Um, but 
it was so good. I was like, oh my God, I like you forget how good these songs are. And yeah, it's not Freddie Mercury playing, but at the time it was it was uh it wasn't just Brian and Roger, it was the th- it was the three remaining members were Paul Rogers. No, uh John Deacon's not been a part of any of the Oh he hasn't? I thought okay. Um but what they've done is they've got quite a few other musicians to fill the band out. So it's really I mean, everyone goes there to see Brian and Roger, but they're quite clever about the way that they've got someone on keys and piano. They've got someone else doing percussion along with Roger on the drums. They've got the other bass player. There's quite a, um, they've kind of put together a clever little super group. Yeah. It, Which, I, you know, I think, cause gone. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I was, I was blown away at how good it was and how, uh, I mean, Paul Rogers, you know, there's not much theatrics to him. He, he, he's, he's not the, his voice is incredible. He's not the most exciting front man, but I, I watched almost an entire two hour concert on YouTube. Cause I was like, I, 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 were you still on mushrooms? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was not, I was not on mushrooms. Okay. Um, but it was great. And then I was, I remember at the time thinking like they should just let it, let it die. Like you can't replace Freddie Mercury. But then after a while, I'm like, yeah, why, why shouldn't they be allowed to continue? I mean, they amazing little? musicians. It shouldn't um, yeah, be a shame just to die out with. I know, right? but you'd think like, oh, think just people, start a new band or. Yeah. I think people misinterpreted what were at the beginning. Um, you guys might know I'm a bit of a Queen fan, but you know <laughs> what? It, originally, like they were asked to perform at some like music awards night, and it was like Queen were going to back up. Brian Rogers going to play for um, Paul Rogers singing a free song, and then they made it into a Queen song. It was very much like a oh, let's just pick two acts together, and then someone said, oh, you guys had this nice natural chemistry on board. What the original tour was was Queen. Plus Paul Rogers, where half the set list was Queen songs and the other set was a mixture of Bad Company and Free. Yeah. You know, outside of a handful of, of Bad Company and Free songs, so that the masses, the, the Queen catalogue was, was bigger. Yeah. So inevitably it became more Queen songs. And the Adam Lambert thing was the same as well. They used to play Adam Lambert songs in the set, but it clearly became a, a, a fact of everyone's going for, for, for the queen numbers. Right. Um, so it was never supposed to be a singer coming in to kind of be the frontman. It was always meant to be sort of Brian and Roger singing with, you know, it'd be the same if they'd gone out with Rod Stewart and done half Rod songs, half queen songs. Yeah. You know, um, that was the idea at the beginning was it was a bit of a, just two old acts going out and almost jamming out to, to their hits. You know, the fact that it's become what it's become, like I said, I don't think anyone expected that. Um, however, I've had, the, I've always loved the idea of building a, a bit similar to the lines of the question that you asked earlier about, you know, what super band would I put together of having a super group of just, you know, anyone, but it's a band that's not like, it's a fluid band in the sense of members, would drop in and out. I love the idea of thing would go on for generations, yeah. you know, and your parents would listen to albums of the same group that is completely different to what you listen to now. And I'm just trying to keep it trendy, but it's an effort of having, you know, like the Elton John on keys and, you know, someone else on, on drums. You might get Bob Geldof as the front singer on one album and then he gets traded out for another singer on the next one. And the idea of this continuous super group, I've always thought that would be kind of cool to get musicians in to just play the instruments, to write new songs and create albums. But, you know, Elton John is only the piano player. Yeah. He's not Elton John in the band. Right. Uh, I've always thought that would be, whether the egos could pull it off or not, you know, in something <laughs> like this, yeah. I, I don't know. But I do think something like that would be fascinating to be a part of or to hear what, you know, you know, what could you do if you had uh, Tony Iommi playing guitar for someone else, but it's not, you know, it's not Black Sabbath songs. It's something that they've created with all these musicians. Yeah. I mean, Just it could be. Lock them in the room and, and, and see what happens. It would be, I'll give it about 12 minutes before there's a cat fight between a whole bunch of musicians. <laughs> 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 um. 
any plans for uh and are you working on a second album anything new coming up yeah um so when my tours got shut down with covid i then thought well that's going to make another record uh, and started that unfortunately all the continuous lockdowns just made it impossible to do in fact we only just got love symphony squeezed out uh in time um so the tracks are there, the ideas there, and some of the fact that the bones of certain tracks have been developed. Um, and I'm now like, I'd, I'd like to get back one single out before the end of the year, if I can, one, one more that I've got, and then hopefully next year go and get the full, full record done. Um, as, a, as a second album, excuse me, second album. Because a lot of the tracks have been there for a while, they've been waiting, really. Um, it's just... I suppose jumping out the pandemic has just been about getting back on the road. Um, but yeah, definitely got plans to get back in, in into the studio and, and get another track out there. Yeah. Well, well that's great. And um, you're touring. Uh, you said you're going to be at the. You're you're hoping to be in the U.S. in March. Yeah, we're kind of hoping to get across. Well, I was hoping to get across uh, at the end of the year, even for like a week or two, just to get my toes into America, to dip my toes in the wall, because to every musician in America, America is still the mecca of music, is still like the, you know, if you've got, you got to make America, you've got to play America to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was like, let's go over there, just get the nucleus, just play it to, save, to get it out of the way, and then come back for a big tour. And it was just not really... The, the smartest way of operating, which I'm not always known for making the smartest of decisions. <laughs> uh, so we now decide to come in uh, and try and have a, a decent crack at it probably sometime around March. And do you... Well, if you guys know any venues that are desperate to have a uh, sort of weird British glam rocker in 2022, let me know because I'll come out. Yeah, there's... Um... Actually, we're, we we live in a in a fairly uh, rich historic musical area. Um, so we're we're like uh, we're in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is uh, where Springsteen came out of. But there's there's lots of music venues here. There there's there's music. Lots. Yeah, lots. Yeah, you you can go see live music just about every night of the week around here. Um, so I'm sure I'm sure we can help find you something. Pick something up. Yeah, I'd love to have a big, good chance to, uh, to come out anyway. And like I said, like you said, just see see on the music, and I suppose be, be inspired by what influences the local youngsters are, are taking out. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I hope you had fun. No, I had a blast. Thank you guys so much for. Uh, where can we download some? Yeah, where where can people find your music? Where can people follow you on social media? The inevitable question that poses the end of an interview. Um, Jimmy Madden across anywhere. So M A W E O N. Not to be confused with Joe Madden, who used to run my. When you Google my name, he used to pop up everywhere. Uh, the basically the former baseball coach. I've now started to find a chip away at his algorithm. So when you search me, I come up now. But Jimmy Madden, M A W D O N. And yeah, anywhere, any good online record store, you get your music in. Like they once used to say, so Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Play, all those sorts of guys. And then, of course, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, no, Hoppers somewhere in the DVD set, there's a MySpace page. But don't go looking for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. JB, thank you so much. Chris, Thanks, you, you got anything coming up you need to plug? I got stuff coming up. All right. The well. Vo- I'm at the Vogel on the 21st, back at the Stress Factory, November 16th, and Comedy Works, New Year's Eve. All right. Those are my big ones. Those are good shows. Yeah. Go see Chris at a. Uh, Come see me. Go see him at the Vogel in Red Bank. Take it from me over here in England. 
<laughs> Start swimming. You'll you'll make the show. I'm in this country now. Um. All right. I am at uh. I'm yeah. at I'm at Stress Factory all this weekend. Today's Wednesday. The episode will be up later. You can see me starting tomorrow night or Friday and Saturday with the very funny uh, Vladimir Kamano. Go to stressfactory.com for tickets. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on. Cheers. We'll have you back when when you know when you know what your tour schedule is and you're coming to the states. We'll have you back on to promote that. Absolutely. All right. Looking forward. Thank you guys very much. You're welcome. See you next week, everybody. 